0: Okay, so we're going to now transition to our next case uh, presentation. So we're going to invite Kristen Marks and anyone else who wants to be an expert. We have Mike's chair is going to be available because he has to catch a flight. So uh, you're welcome to come up and we're going to deal with some of the questions that uh, have already come in because I think Your questions are more important than the ones I prepared, so we'll start right off, once we get our panelists up here, with the ones that you asked. Um, And I won't ask if the fellows and the residents are still here. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so do you have the cases? And you have a laptop, great. For your comfort and convenience, we're going to have them but we are going to ask that you don't advance the slides rapidly beyond the speed okay. that I do them. So we're in control. You'll see. You're in control of that. Oh, they're going to see what I'm doing. Oh, good, because otherwise they could go see all the answers. for.
1: Okay. I think since our hepatologist left, we should have some advantage here. So. You should have
0: a competitive advantage because let's start out. There's a, a fantastic question about children with um, with hepatitis. And... What do the guidelines say, and, and how do we address that sort of thing? So, um, d- Kristen, do you want to uh, comment on, uh, on on that issue?
2: Right. Um, so there is a new section in the guidelines on Hep C and children. So for those of you who take ch- take care of children, I think it's very helpful. Um, so fosbupiridipsphere was approved for children 12 and older. Um, so there's an option for the older children, and then I think you know the other. Uh, ages, you, uh, I think it's recommended to defer therapy unless there's a reason to do it sooner. And then there's also recommendations for testing for women. I think, I think a common situation now is uh, women, I mean, children born to a woman who has hep C. And there's recommendations for that as well. So they're very helpful.
0: So if you, if, you, if you learn nothing else, if you go on your laptop or on your phone, HCV guidance or guidelines, it, it's, it's, either one works, it'll bring up the, the guidelines. You click on them, they're formatted now for your phone. You can go over across the top, there's a new format that's really spectacular, very easy to use. It'll, it'll give you the options of picking your genotype or there's a column that says special populations. And if you click on the special populations, you'll see all these ones. You'll see HIV co-infection, you'll see renal, you'll see decompensated cirrhosis, you'll see children, and 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 it'll allow you to really quickly get answers to your questions. I I love it. I still use it a lot. um, Since
2: I brought up pregnant women, um, you know, I think one of the recommendations that's or something that's being considered as a recommendation is whether to routinely test pregnant women. And that's because really, you know, now there's, we think of baby boomers with hep C, but there's really this bimodal prevalence of hep C because of the opioid epidemic. And uh, definitely in New York State and New York City, there's, you know, uh, younger people who, there's a high prevalence amongst young people and a very high incidence in that group as well. So I think that is an area where we could identify Hep C, and, and it's important then to screen the infants as well.
0: So, Kristen, in your talk, you you had um, a comment about not to use the abbreviated treatments in African Americans because of, of lack, I, I presume, mm-hmm. because of lack of data and experience with that. Do you want to, one, one of the questions was to, to please explain that?
2: Right, so it's, it's somewhat controversial because I think there's, you know, in the original um, studies of sofospevir, which is the regimen that this is talking about, so the, there's indication, for, or potentially, uh, you could use eight weeks, and people who do not have cirrhosis have a viral load less than six million, and the question is, does that regimen work as well in Blacks and non-Blacks? And in in some of the initial studies, it was just kind of clear that people who were relapsing were more likely to be Black, with the in general, and it was sort of extrapolated to not use the eight-week regimen in that group. And and I think there's been some real-world data that's kind of supported that and some real world data that has refuted that and I, I think it's just unclear at this point. But the label is for 12 weeks. You know, they have it in the text, eight weeks is an option in the situation. So I think it's a potential option, but I um, I think people can also bring in cost effectiveness as you know now I feel very strongly to give 12 weeks when there was no second line regimen, when you know this is what we had and, and if it didn't work there was nothing else. Um, Now there is a second-line regimen, so if it doesn't work the first time, still a very small percentage of people that it might not work in, say three or 4% of people who who maybe with 12 weeks, I'm sorry, I'm not keeping this short, I know you said to keep it short, Mm -hmm. but for 12 weeks compared to eight weeks, there's a small percentage of people um, you know, maybe worth in kind of the context of just being able to treat more people overall to to use eight weeks and then be able to retreat. So I think there could be a cost-effectiveness question there in terms of you know if you have a very limited budget, how to get most people treated as long as you're allowing for people to be retreated if it didn't work the first time. So I think it kind of comes down to decisions regarding the patient in front of you versus a population and what's the best regimen. But for now, I support using 12 weeks and or at least having it be the providers at the provider's discretion of using 12
0: weeks. Please yeah I wanted to ask you on that mm-hmm. that Softwell 8 versus 12 weeks on that thing. Now Softwell and the PI did worse in that you know and it was compared into the, yeah. the category. Does that say anything about that eight weeks type of thing?
2: Well, so for the soft Vox right. compared to soft-vel for the 12 versus 12, eight, right. they didn't have that viral load threshold did, of six million cutoff there. Did and, they see any difference in viral load? And some of those loads? patients were serodics. right? So, so soft
0: Vox for eight being worse than soft-vel for 12. Yeah. But is it, what was it because of the
2: serodics? I think probably cirrhotics played Well I'd have to look back at that and see yeah, of that, those 14 relapses, how question. many were cirrhotics. That's a good question.
0: Okay, so uh, last one before we go into the cases. How, uh, how many times do you do PCRs after SVR 12? So SVR, the 12 weeks after treatment, you get a, a test back, it's negative. That's SVR 12, that's cure. The, the question here is, do you do it again ever? Are you done? Um, how do you deal with reinfection if somebody, there's a related question, if they're, I think it's interesting, if you're reinfected, does it matter what you got cured from the first time, or do you just treat the, the new one? So Anybody?
1: I'll, I'll, I'll take the first one, because it seems straightforward to me. After sbr 12 I don't check again, unless I think they're at risk for reinfection. And if I cured them the first time, I treat the new infection like a new infection.
2: I think that's reasonable. I sometimes repeat the viral load once just to be sure. A lot of people want it repeated to just be sure. Um, But yeah, SVR-12 is a cure. Uh, Just important to, at the SVR-12 point, make sure the liver tests normalize too, right? Because if there's still, this whole concept of, you know, hep C isn't the only potential liver disease here. So I do make sure transaminases have normalized And if they haven't, you need to think about fatty liver or what else is going on as well.
0: Great. Okay, so now we're gonna head into some cases. There we go. That's that? my disclosure. What's that?
1: I just wasn't sure if I did it or no, you no, did it. No, no, I did it. it. Okay. I think
0: I'm I'm am con- controlling your computer too. I feel really powerful. <laughs> I
1: think I'm so of the screen. They're gonna
0: have to fast forward. Oh, okay. okay. So we're you do have to fast forward. Okay. So we're going to talk about staging. We're going to talk about initial treatment. We're going to consolidate some of these points and try to draw it all together. All right, so let's start out with this case. 47-year-old is referred to your clinic from a fairly qualified health center for treatment of hepatitis C. This patient has hypertension, high cholesterol, and diabetes. He's also had a stroke about nine months ago, but regained uh, all of his uh, strength. He has an unknown duration of hepatitis C infection and is HIV negative. His meds are nifedipine, insulin, hydrochlorothiazide, pantoprazole, provostatin, his BMI is 32, his blood pressure uh, and pulse are normal. Sorry, I went too fast, did to, a to double click. So his labs come back. He's gene- In fact, these actually were sent with him. His 1A, his HCV viral load is seven logs, his albumin 4.2, total ability 0.6, creatinine 0.9, INR 1, AST 65, ALT 69, platelets 150. So AST 65, ALT 69, platelets 150. Fibrosure, which is a trade name, because there's really no other way to refer to that right now in the United States, um, 0.49. Elastography, 9.6. Fib-4, 2.45. A1c, 9.2. Everybody have that in your mind? I'm going to ask you what his stage is, so why you can still see these results, think about what this stage you think his liver disease is. Is he stage one? Two, three, four, or you don't know and that's why they made hepatologists. What happened to the music? You had music in the morning. Were you like pushing the limits there too much and then the whole system glitched or were that we down? I would like the music. I think I think the music was nice. It's kind of peppy and
1: maybe you can sing Dave. No, no, there will be no singing. Trip
0: I actually can sing. I cannot. So we're not gonna do that. All right, how are we doing? Forty-three results are in, and oh, good—we've spread everyone. So we, we have a little bit of a spread: twelve percent says one, twenty-one percent says a two, thirty percent three, and uh, there is twenty-one percent that just would rather have a hepatologist sort this out. All right. So, what do you, any feelings about this? There's, there's, um, uh, and if you need to, I can go back to the data again. We yeah.
2: have Well, I mean. So, first, how I generally approach it when I meet a patient is just look at them and examine them first, and do I see any signs of cirrhosis? You didn't mention it. There were no signs of cirrhosis. And then I kind of, usually someone already has an uh, AST and a platelet level, so I'll kind of do, I look at the platelets first, and if they're, lowish or dropping, I start to worry about cirrhosis. And then you can do the AST to platelet ratio index, just as kind of a very easy test to do right in the clinic. And it does take into account the upper limit of normal of AST, so I do need to use the, I usually just use an online calculator. If you Google APRI, it'll pop up. So those are things you can do right away. And then these other tests were things, obviously, that were sent off, and, um, and, you know, the transient elastography, the cutoff, Usually around 12 or 12.5, so he's below that threshold. So he doesn't—I know he doesn't have cirrhosis. So I typically kind of—that's my first decision: are they cirrhosis or not? I feel much less comfortable saying, "Is it a two or is it a three or is it a one?" I mean, it's probably not a zero one. Those numbers seem kind of high. Um, so it's probably a two or a three. But
0: that's a, that's a, great. That's an excellent answer. Does it, so so we're 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 feeling like. Uh, He's not obviously cirrhotic, on exam or in any other way, and um, we have a test that we just learned from Dr. Charlton. has high sensitivity for detection of cirrhosis, and it's lower than it should be for cirrhosis. So let's get a little bit of uh, uh, better feeling. And I, I'm going to just hammer on this for a second, because I think this is an area where we still struggle, those that practice with hepatitis C, and I want to demystify some of this. Staging. Uh, so I'm going to just take a second and go through this. First of all, these are the ways you can stage. You can, you can still stage with biopsy if you want. It's not terribly useful. And then you have really the blood markers and the elastography, and, and a little bit different than, than Mike, I'm going to argue that blood markers are, are actually very reasonable uh, ways of staging, uh, though I do agree that the elastography is the best. So the one thing you always have is this Fib4, right? You, you already have that because there's no patient in your practice that doesn't have a platelet count, an AST, and an ALT. So, and, and, and usually you know their age. So with this, you can calculate a Fib4. And here's the information that the Fib4 gives you. So just the reason, like, get comfortable with this because you always have a Fib4. So you may as well know what it means for your patient. And when you have a Fib4, this was the original study, describing people with big biopsies, where we really thought that the biopsy told us the truth, big pieces of tissue, and then what was the Fib4 score? And the people with cirrhosis uh, had higher Fib4s than the people without cirrhosis. So these are the fibrosis scores, 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4, with 4 being cirrhosis and 3 being a lot of bridging. And you can see that they're higher here. But you can also see, you know how this kind of stuff works? These are 50% of the patients between here and here, and that's the median. So there's 25% here, and there's 25% there. And that's true for all these distributions. So as Kristen said, you can be pretty sure that this person with a score of a FIB4 in the mid-2s doesn't have cirrhosis. Well, wait a minute, maybe they do, because some did here. So an intermediate FIB4 doesn't do a very good job of ruling out ruling out cirrhosis, and doesn't do a very good job of ruling it in, because a lot of these other people, even with low disease, what you can be pretty sure is that person's not going to have an F0. Maybe they'll have an F1, because 95% of F1s were below that person's Fib 4 And this has been borne out in multiple studies, lots of really big studies with hundreds and uh, even 1,000 people, and this Fib 4 correlates with long-term outcomes. So I take all the time to do that. I have no commercial interest in the Fib4, <laughs>
1: um,
0: although I was on the paper uh, describing it. Mm-hmm. But it's a really good, free test that you always have, and you're starting with this even before you've even tried to order another test.
1: And, the and so the other thing I'll say about the Fib4. so. If you noticed, I was really quiet during that last question because I actually didn't know the answer. I knew mm-hmm. that the, the um, transient elastography score didn't meet cirrhosis because that 12, I can remember in my head, but I can't remember the FIB4 cutoffs. So when you go to the FIB4 calculator, all the cutoffs are there. It gives you an explanation. It gives you the references. So I don't think you have to remember the, the cutoff numbers. You just need to remember you always have one, and you can Google it with your patient in the room and talk to them about it. So that's the other... Yeah. yeah,
0: I always use a calculator. Just plug it right in. You can do it before the patient comes in, and then you know you're fib4, and you have a feeling. You already have a really good feeling for what's going on, all right? And, and it's, it, these are the numbers that they've ended up using. And if you want sort of more specific data, you can look at the, uh, the number with F3 or 4 who had a high. So if we, if we go into fib4 levels in the middle, like our patient did, it's not so helpful. Not so helpful because 73% ended up with low disease stage and 27% had high. And so a lot of times the Fib4 doesn't give you a 100% answer. But if you had a really low Fib4, you could be pretty sure it's not up here. And if you have really high Fib4, you can be pretty sure it's not down there. But it's not 100% and and that's actually true for all these tests. None of them are perfect. This is the elastography. Uh, in, in a co-infected uh, setting, very high negative predictive value for ruling out cirrhosis, and that's really what we're trying to do, especially th- these use different cutoffs, but the cutoff of around 12 had very high sensitivity. It was 100 uh, uh, percent ability to rule out cirrhosis at that low level. If you go up higher, you're going to accidentally miss a couple cirrhotics. But um, it's a really good test. So how many of you have access to elastography? Can you get it? Because if you can get it, it's fantastic. We have it in our clinic, so every patient effectively gets it. And putting that together with the fib 4 is a fantastic way to get your staging. The other thing elastography gives you is not just a 0-1 or a 1-2-3-4, but it gives you an idea of how bad the cirrhosis might be. And, and, and so this is a venous pressure gradients here, the gold standard for portal hypertension, and these are the stiffness scores. And the higher the stiffness scores, the higher the venous pressure gradient. So when you get a, a score back from your elastography of 30, that's different than 14. They're both cirrhosis, but one of them is in a lot more serious position than the other. And one of them, you're really going to need to double down on all your variceal screening and all that sort of stuff. And, and be especially careful. So it, I love this test. I love combining it with the Fib4. Um, uh, and recently, just a couple of months ago, the AGA published its, its guidance on this. And they said, okay, can we really use this? And, and, and is, the, is the elastography better than the Fib4? So they're comparing a free thing you always have to this radiologic tests that cost a couple hundred dollars. I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm saying, like, the FIB4 is really good. It it required a consensus panel to, to answer the question of, is it better? Is the elastography even better than the FIB4? And so they asked this question, is it any better? And they said, yes, it is. It's better for finding cirrhosis. And it all comes down to this, this one little group here, where if you're looking at the, comparing the ability of transient elastography compared to FIB4, and, and the, 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 the false negatives, in other words, the ones where you said you don't have cirrhosis, but they actually did, because that's the scary ones, right? That's the ones where you missed it. So, th- so the ones, the times you miss it are more with Fib4 than elastography, but you only miss it six times more out of 1,000 in a high risk population. That's not bad. I mean, if you're, I'm not, not to say that I won't order the elastography. But the Fib4 is pretty dang good because it was free and it only was six out of a thousand times worse. Okay, so it's a good test and I love combining together. And I just, I kind of wanted to just take a minute and make that point because I think it doesn't give it, it kind of doesn't get enough respect.
1: In, Back in the to the, there was a question about peritoneal dialysis. I don't know if fiber performs well in that setting, and I've seen some results that didn't make sense, in which case we went to another test, but.
0: You can't do uh, elastography in pregnancy. You can't do it in people that have another reason for having a stiff liver, like right heart failure, and you can't do it with peritoneal dialysis because it's kind of like a cytes So there, and you can't do it right after you eat. It falsely elevates the, the levels. So, and you can't do it in people who are overweight about 20% of the time. So it, it has limitations. So two tests. <laughs> the worst thing about the, the FIB4 is is that the insurance companies aren't smart enough to know how good it is because they won't respect it and they won't do approvals based on it so you have to get another test almost all the time
2: yeah if you need a transient elastography we do them at cornell and um you could send them we do them in our liver clinic but you doesn't mean we have to take over the care of your patient if you're going to treat your own if you're treating the hep c and just want the the um, fibrous scan performed or the transient elastography, we will just just call and say that and and they'll schedule them just for that.
0: Yeah, go ahead, just yell it out. So you six more out of was, that it was a modeling exercise, yeah. How could that be cost effective? Well I, I didn't say it was cost effective. You have to get the elastography to, to get the drug approval because they won't pay attention to the um to the four. But I, I, the fib four if you're practicing in a in a, in another like setting uh, where you're trying to be super cost, effective yeah, i That's I get it. I I think that's a great question. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a good it's a great point. The the fib four is much better than most people think. It is slightly, not statistically, slightly better than the fibresure, the one that LabCorp sells. But the fibresure, the the company's respect as a. Uh, as a, so, so I, you know, I, I'm not since, trying to change the world, but I'm just giving you the, the facts.
2: But since he brought up ITP, that would make it falsely elevated your FIB4 because like lower low platelets for a reason other than cirrhosis will tend to give you a higher score. So that is kind of one setting where it may not be appropriate to use FIB4 because you're going to get a really unless you just are trying to get it through approvals. And <laughs> <laughs> We
0: want and, and that's pretty much what this question is that just came up, is, is are there sort of situations where the one is systematically better or worse or something like that? And there are situations where if you see the formula, for example, for the for the fibro test or sure that there's haptoglobin in it, there's bilirubin in it. So when there's when there's reasons other than liver fibrosis that raise the bilirubin or lower the haptoglobin, they give you false uh, or abnormal uh, uh results on that. And and likewise, if there's something else that lowers your platelets it has nothing to do with liver fibrosis, that will give you uh, a false result or or raises your platelets. So so those are all ways in which these tests can sometimes be uh, off systematically. But most of the time, the point is, even with biopsy, you're just getting an approximation. And um, the good news is, is that with these tests like FIB4 and elastography, in very large studies, the people with low ones don't, get, don't die and they don't get liver failure, okay? And they don't get liver cancer. So those are good things. And so even though there's air in them, overall they, they perform reasonably well. But not well enough if you're in a state where they won't give you drug on F2. That's just a complete joke. They have no basis because they have no idea what, who has F2 and who has F1. They may as well flip a coin but they're denying life-saving so treatment stupid. on that basis. Not that's that I have an opinion on that. <laughs> so, um, all right, so his, let's say his resistance test comes back, uh, and, and this guy, so you're, you're going to, before you yell at me for why, for, um, why he has a resistance test, because he's treatment naive, it's because his managed care has a deal with the manufacturer of the elastog or the um, uh, uh, elbasphere, Grisopovir. and so they always get resistance testing because because they listen to one of Kristen's lectures and they know you have to have resistance testing if you're going to do that with 1A. So he has these this result. So he's uh, 1A, though, right? He's he is 1, 1A, Okay. and he has a 93.
1: So it's appropriate to do. Yeah. Only yeah. if you're going to use, I thought, Albusvir-Grasapivir, well, yeah. that's right. what I learned. And, and they <laughs> yeah. have a
0: deal with albusvir and now they got this result back, and now they're like, okay, send them to Hopkins. So now's why he's coming to Hopkins. So now the question is how would you treat him? And your choices are GP for 12, GP for 8, Elbosvir, gazapavir for 12, soft Lediposvir for 8, soft belbach for 12, yes. Thank you. And Springsteen, what a great writer. Bring it back.
2: back to we the mansions of glory and
1: suicide.
0: Okay, very interesting. It's very smart. Okay, the panel.
1: I'm going to say what I know he should not be treated with, and then I'm going to give it over to Christian, who knows more Hep C than I do. Um, so, I believe you cannot use four, the soflodibusvir for eight weeks because his viral load is too high. It was above the six million. And then we cannot use albisvir grisopravir for 12 weeks, I believe, with that mutation, but not 100% sure. And then I learned from Kristen that we can't use, we should not be using five for treatment naive patients.
2: Right. So you're down to one or two, right? Wow. Yes. Nicely Very done. Yes. Nice. Very <laughs> you know, if, well, if number two works, then number one definitely works, right? So you're kind of like, um, but, so, um, he doesn't have cirrhosis, we determined. So, did we determine that? So okay, it's interesting. All that? <laughs>
0: So I, I should have come back around to that. So I, I my personal opinion is that, and, and and these are real, is that he has F3. I, I thought, I trust the elastography, I think is his uh, fibrochure and FIB4 four, fib four is not so helpful because it's in the middle on this one. The osteography makes me think he's not cirrhotic. I think he's probably in the F3 range. He might be in F2, but he, he's, I'm, I'm going to uh, at a point I'll get to in a, in a minute. I tend to round up, so, so I, I, I go with the most conservative. So I think he's not F4, but I think he's probably, I'm going to act like he's in F3. So you, So the, the issue for you is, is if if a hepatologist, if Mike Charlton said, okay, he has F3, would you do eight or 12 for F3?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the way it was approved and the way it was studied was basically cirrhosis or no cirrhosis. So um, for no cirrhosis, it's eight weeks of GP.
0: And does that mutation affect yeah, anything? Yeah, well,
2: so the mutations, And yeah. it's seven
0: log viral load.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, you're kind of getting <laughs> to this. And it's being
0: African-American. Now, go ahead. Decide. <laughs> yeah.
2: He does have a lot of. Did know. I
0: mention he was a lawyer? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you're talking to the wrong person because I'm a super over-treater. I will always give the longer duration of everything. But you know, really, I mean, how many people exactly like him were there in the study? I don't know. He does have a lot of hard to treat characteristics. You know, the kind of so. Um, but the recommendation is eight weeks, and you know, I would prob that's probably what I would do. I think you're gonna have a hard time getting. 12 weeks through in a non serotic and I think um, he will do fine with 8 weeks, so I would give him 8 weeks.
0: I think that's a great answer. I I wrote for 12, just (laughs) like you, knowing that I would get 8, and I got 8.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, And and you've already shown the data, so I'm not going to go through those again. The one thing that we didn't show were the data for why the screening's done for the albosfira gazopovir, and these are those data here in the box there. The, the response rate for those that, that did have a RAS, so having a, a baseline RAS and, uh, was 58% compared to 99% for those without. So that's why the recommendation came to always test 1As uh, because if they do, you have to add in the ribavirin or use a different regimen. Most of us prefer using a different regimen. okay. So the, the guidance looks like this if you have gotten your phone out or your computer and looked at. That's the format that you'll get it in, and it gives you a menu. And some of you ask, and I was waiting till now to say, what do you do when the insurance company sort of only approves one thing? And, and this, this is what you, you these are all, all the, the regimens that are considered acceptable, and you would accept, I think most of us would accept, given um, if an insurance company gave us one of these choices in most patients for 1A. And then contrast the ones without cirrhosis to the ones with. So so there's not many differences, but one of the things I like, because I like simple things, I don't have a memory like some of my colleagues here, is that all the cirrhotic naives are 12. So everything is 12 in cirrhosis. 12 weeks so that just makes it easier for me to remember so uh, so that's that's the treatment now that we've got kind of an idea of what our menu is and and I already even disclosed what I did but we have another issue to deal with here so let's uh, let's continue on with the case and just to remind you here he is these are his meds uh, and uh, we've got to deal with these drug interactions so uh, Pantoprazole, and Pravastatin. And we want to come in now. We've already said that we're interested in using GP, um, but how are we feeling about the use of GP with this background? Oh, and, and while you're doing that, I'll read these questions that just came in.
2: There was no reason. Did you feel you couldn't use soft panosphere or sofosphere or
0: so... The,
2: because of the Y93 h
0: Yeah, the, y, the Y93, so we had, uh, if we're going to go, well, first of all, are we going to go with the cirrhosis box or the non-cirrhotic for an F3?
2: You tell us. Uh, I feel like
0: <laughs> F3s act like cirrhosis more. I think you could honestly lean either direction here because mm-hmm. it's sort of a soft F3. Um, and with that mutation, I was feeling personally more like GP would be uh, a good choice because... Vir is fantastic, even for the 93. So I was like, knowing that, knowing it was a high viral load, knowing it was African-American, mm-hmm. I was feeling best with that regimen. Um, the, the, the drug interaction issues, just to remind you, I think we've already covered some of these, um, but with the uh, Elbisvir, Gazopavir, there's no issue with the Pantoprazole, no issues with the statin, so that's good. With the um, uh, GP, there is a little bit of a cautionary tale, uh, historically, with the Pantoprazole, as Christa mentioned, but I'm going to show you in a second that there are data that just came out a couple days ago that say that we don't have to worry about that. And then with regard to the statin, what a lot of us do is just dose reduce. Because the PIs, you know, they raise the statin level. And so Mike's already told us that it's fine to treat a cirrhotic with a statin. And, and, and so then the issue is, is uh, will the interaction are, uh, boost the statin up too high? And so, it's quite simply, I just lowered the, the statin dose and, and still pressed on with that regimen. These are the data with the, the drug levels. These are the AUCs over on the y-axis, and notice that even with high-dose PPIs, the prebrenosphere um, the drug levels were pretty much the same as the no acid group all the way on the far right. See that, the black group on the far right compared to the, the blue. So and, and, and so that's kind of led, and in the same abstract that presented this week, there was um, a lot of clinical data showing no differences in, in uh, SVRs. So I think given that right now, I, I would allow somebody uh, to go ahead with, um, with their PPI, first thing we always do is say, are you even taking it? Because, you know, it's on everyone's med list. And a lot of times they're not. Or if they are, they're like, yeah, I have no idea why. And then you say, well, let's try stopping it. Because most of the time, and I would say like nine times out of ten, I've just stopped it. And if I have needed to, and it's been totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had one this week where that wasn't working out so well and we had to come back in. Um, with a, uh, a low dose um, and take the meds at the exact same time to, to get around that. Comments from the panel? Sounds good. All right. So now, now, after all this time and all this discussion, and we're still in case one, are you ready to treat him yet? We already said we would—how we might do it, but are we going to actually go into EPIC and write the prescription? Yes? is number one, and no, I need another, something else first.
1: Yeah. And then to
0: the panel, just like Raj warned you, if you say no, then I'll ask you, well, what are you waiting for?
2: At
0: least we have music to get us to it. <laughs> are ready to go, ready and raring, and 9% think if he was ready to go, why would he put this question in there? Like, there must be something more to it.
1: So I can disagree with the New Yorkers on this one. I think I would want one more test before I start treatment. Just if we're going to treat him like a cirrhotic, I want to get a screening test for um, hepatocellular carcinoma, because I'm a transplant person. And I'm thinking, let's make sure he doesn't need a transplant before I go ahead and eradicate his hepatitis C. So that always sticks in my mind of let's rule out an indication for transplant before treatment. And so I would image him.
0: Yeah, yes. And I
1: didn't even cheat, promise. And,
0: and, and in truth, I made this part up at the end, because we realized we didn't have any hepatocellular carcinoma teaching. He didn't. This guy did not have a papillary carcinoma, <laughs> but I have had uh, people all the way down into the uh, sort of 10 to 12 range who have. So it does happen. It's pretty uncommon below an uh, uh, elastography score of 12, but um, uh, we do need to do this. We have to rule out, the, you know, the papillary carcinoma in F3s and F4. And Mike talked about the HALT-C study. And one of the interesting parts about the HALT-C study was that arm where they just watched people, and even in the ones where they gave them interferon, there were still liver cancer cases that occurred in the F3s. Um, and uh, it was lower than the F4s, but there was a, a, a really high incidence of, of cancer and end-stage liver disease in F3s by big, big biopsies done by the best hepatologists in the country. So that that just proved the point. Okay, so do that first, okay? Don't, that's actually really hard sometimes because you write the prescription, everyone's enthusiastic, and they're ready to go, and they never get around to get, you know, sometimes the patient hasn't gotten the ultrasound yet, and everyone's, nurses calling saying, why can't they start? The pharmacy's like, they're here, and this is one where I've really held my, held, and one time it really sa- saved me because the person did have liver cancer, and then we could get them into transplant. Um, and the person got an organ quickly, so that was good. Okay, so uh, are you ready to cheat Yeah. No, uh, I need Dr. Charleston's cell or yes. <laughs> so let, let's just go through that one because that's dumb. Okay, so, so the summary is, um, you know, I think I beat this to death. Elastography is great, but FIP4 is a close second and free. You don't need, uh, as, as Kristen's made really clear to us, you don't need the baseline RAV testing unless you're using the Elbows here for 1A. Uh, there's initial treatment is pretty much these days based on pharmacology and insurance. We w- one of the questions that sometimes comes up and, and I'll, I'll like, you know, Kristen, you can say a word about it, is when you have somebody with cirrhosis, that's maybe child A minus or B plus, when are you not and, the, and then the insurance company wants you to have to use a protease inhibitor? Are you? reluctant or do you consider that um that that's totally fine and you just go ahead and write it and, and move on or do you fight with them and say i'm not comfortable with a protease inhibitor when somebody already has a little bit of decompensation so any comments on that
2: yeah i would try to avoid it if someone has so you'd fight that would be one where you'd I fight
0: i
1: think you yeah yeah
0: kristen i mean you you see them when they're already decompensated before the the uh, transplants, but uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm always looking for a reason to argue with the insurance companies if I wanna do something and they're telling me to do something different, so there's that reason. But I mean, I think when you have so many other options, why put the patient at risk for having a drug interaction, or uh, sorry, having a a drug reaction, a transaminitis, and then you're you know stuck against the wall. So I would probably avoid that too.
0: Okay, and and then you must rule in, rule out HCC before and uh, after you stop treatment, continue to look for cancers, especially I'll just say caveat, like little not much data to show you, but when your patient's more than 60, watch really carefully, because that's where cancer just really starts to pop up.
1: I was also really struck. I think it was at Croy by the results that it matters whether you do Q six months on the dot, or if you are the Q nine months or Q twelve months. Those patients presented with more advanced, uncurable HCC. So it really matters to be on time for a very simple, non-invasive screening test.
0: It's hard. To, it's hard. It's very hard to organize for your patients. Somebody yeah. asked about APRI versus Fib four. Fib4 is better than APRI and it's a little harder math. You can't do it in your head. The APRI you just do the a- AST divided by the upper limit of normal and then put the plates in the bottom and usually you can kind of get a feeling for that. The Fib4 has got the square root of the ALT in the denominator and that just, okay, no. Um, so then you have to use the formula. So I, I just prefer Fib4. I think it's a better, it's a slightly better test, more or less saying the same thing, but giving you the age and, 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 this, and the ALT to AST ratio as a, so I, I prefer it.
2: And you're on the paper.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Huh? I'm
2: just kidding. Anna
0: Locke might disagree with me since she wrote. Okay, so let's go on. So, and the other, sorry, the, the other cases aren't that long, so. Okay, so a 55-year-old woman with genotype 3 Hep C has failed soft cladosphere. We haven't talked much about retreatment, but she has failed soft here and is HIV-positive on L-vitegravir, cystat, FTC, and TAP. So think drug interactions, think decladosphere uh, exposure. She's o- only on otherwise hydrochlorothiazide and vitamin D. Her exam is normal, no stigmata of end-stage liver disease. Her, uh, but the, and there are labs, A- A- HIV 6.2, uh, logs albumin 3.6 total bilirubin 1.2 creatinine 1.1 INR normal AST 62 ALT 47 so the AST is above the ALT so that's you know square root you're going to get down the seven range it's going to it's going to be a, a relatively high uh, fib4 with a platelet count of 120 definitely cirrhotic fibroscure 0.8 elastography 15.6 so. And a fib 4 that's high, so all the, all the tests are saying cirrhosis, genotype 3, soft act exposure. What's the next step? Test for resistance, Get, uh, use soft valve vox for 12, soft valve vox and ribavirum for 12, GP for 24, soft cladiosphere and ribavirum for 24, or join the medical students out in the park. <laughs> People were listening to Dr. Marks, and they're going to get to hear her again. I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, I would also test for resistance, although you might argue it's not going to change what you give. But generally, you want to know. I mean, so I showed you to cladosphere for genotype three. Cephalosporics didn't do as well as it did for non serotics So it's not, you know. It's not like an anomaly that this didn't work for her. It kind of makes sense. And when you, when treatments, when someone gets the appropriate treatment and it doesn't work, usually they'll have resistance. So probably she has some NS5A resistance. Um, It'd be unlikely she had sofospevir resistance that persisted. So I usually wouldn't check for that. I would check for the NS5A. And what are we going to get at what you're going to treat with, or should I go into that? You go. You go, go ahead. Go you're into the that. expert. Okay. So then the questions there are, you know, which of these would we use for retreatment? And I think um, you really want to focus in on number two and number three here, that uh, those are the potential options for a retreatment. And... Um, I think, and this is a, even this is where I'm going to say I would have to look it up to. I can't remember. Do you need data in the ribavirin or not? I think the studies actually for genotype 3, they... You can d- look
0: at the next slide. Oh,
2: good. Thank you. <laughs> no,
0: it's not teasing.
2: Um, oh, here we go. So it actually doesn't have ribavirin, but that's a situation where, okay, you're, again, you have a, hard, a hard-to-treat person. She's failed soft-deck, and I think some people, if there was a lot of resistance, might throw in some ribavirin, but... Um, you know, I think the rec- recommendation is that you don't need it, and I think the studies support that you don't need it. Am I right there? Well, the bottom,
0: under the, under the dotted line, Oh, for Dick? For when you have um, a prior NS5 oh. failure, so this oh. was a soft DAC failure, and cirrhosis, weight-based, weight-based virus is recommended.
1: That's okay. why we all have to have it on oh, our phones. Geez. That's <laughs> why we
0: all look at the guidelines.
1: Yeah, so you do need on the ribavirin.
0: And you have to look below the dotted line sometimes.
1: Yeah,
0: even. yeah, yeah. It's, sorry. Yeah, but it's, it's, like really, it's really difficult. I thought
2: difficult. you needed the ribavirin, but then I talked myself
0: out of it. Yeah, no, well, so. <laughs> it, I, I, yeah, it's, a, it's a, not a high data uh, recommendation. So, right. so I think that would be the, the, the general recommendation. Um, very difficult. This is the last frontier you have a uh, someone who failed a NS5A, a real one, like a Declatosphere or a Lodiposphere, failed that with genotype 3 and cirrhosis, this is the most yeah. difficult patient left, and um, one way of thinking about it is you just give them everything, in this case off Lvox and Ribavirin. Yeah. Um,
2: I guess where that resistance test could also help you is say she didn't have resistance right. and, yep. you know, you maybe she had some contraindication to ribavirin. So then you would feel much better about not using ribavirin if there was no NS5A resistance. So you can kind of, you know, help it, have it guide you on when you kind of want to do something else.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I noticed we're on slide 36 of 32, so we must be getting close to the end. Um, so the next issue will, of course, be uh, drug interactions. and. Uh, yeah. We remember the the um, the the antiretrovirals, and so here is where it starts to get a little gnarly. And just to be crystal clear, in case we haven't said this yet, there is nothing else different about HIV co-infected compared to HCV mono anymore. It's just the drugs. Okay, so all the RECs are pretty much the same. It's the it's the antiretroviral drug interactions. So here the question then comes down to. Um, the this this person uh and whether or not you have to monkey around with her antiretroviral first you need to go back to that one right uh,
2: so she was on kobe right
0: yeah she um, was on kobe i'll go i'll go back she was on a elvitegravir kobe ftc taf regimen
2: yeah so i don't know if people are aware but there wasn't a Clinical trial of Sofvavix in co-infected patients. This is one where we really only have sort of yeah. um, PK type studies to guide us. And uh, is there a question on it, or can we? Well, just so them? just walk us
0: through. So when you see that regimen, and you're thinking, I'm about to use Hep C treatments, you're gonna. You see the Elvitegravir. Does that does that bring fear to your heart, or is there any kind yeah. of worries with a, when you when you have a. Uh, L-vitegravir, or does that kind of feel like something that's going to work out okay? And FTC and Tap. So really the, the thing is the Kobe that you're worried about here, and the fact that we want to do a PI. I'm just going to skip forward and show um, some of the data. The, these were the ones that were just recently published, showing the effects at various—can you see in the—make um, sense out of the slide where you have the AUC—so this is a AUC. And, um, and, and on this axis, and then here's pay people on L-Vitegavir, CoB, TAF and FTC. And so there's, the AUC is 300% increase, the min uh, uh, is high, so there's, there's this potential, potential issue uh, to get into with, you know, and, and you're intuitively already worried, you got, you're saying like, I got Kobe and I'm gonna give a PI to hep CPI, but nonetheless, you're going to be kind of worried about And this is, these are the data in healthy volunteers. So I, I think whether or not this ends up changing practice or changing your practice in this case uh, r- remains to be seen. But th- this is the uh, sort of the, this is, these are all the data we have today, and we have very little uh, clinical experience on this final frontier of hep C, genotype 3, needing a PI for retreatment and uh, a person on on something like COBE or another HCVPI. Everything else was okay, and this is what it looks like if you look in the guidance. So I I wanted to show this because it gets you familiar with how to look at these things. So if you look at the, um, you you got your hep C drugs up here, and then Jen Kaiser's made this nice thing referred to as a Kaisergram, where you got your hep C meds up here, and then your HIV meds down here, and, and green is good, and red is bad, and yellow means she can't really decide. And so it's, or, or just to be cautious. And so you can see some of the sort of obvious trends where if you're going to go with a PI-based hep C regimen, you don't want to have HIV PIs, and you don't want to have boosting. Rule of thumb, general principle. And then, uh, but then when you get into sort of uh, rilpivirine, green for everything, another rule of thumb, easy to think about. Um, And then more related to this case, when we get into the integrase inhibitors, we're we're gonna be pretty much fine across the board. Uh, Kobe starts to cause some problems with the PIs, and she's got the uh, Elbasvir-Grizapavir in red, and she's got the GP in yellow here. Uh, as, as a caution, and the vox in yellow. So it's, it's just, this is what we've got right now, and she's got it in yellow, it was a 300% AUC. I think it's a judgment call. This patient has, is going to die of, of, of hepatitis C and not, or of liver disease and not HIV. So I, I think going full bore with, um, with the uh, soft vox and ribavirin is a good idea, and just monitoring closely Realizing that it's, it would be shocking if a serotic didn't have more of a boost than a, um, a non serotic And obviously, if you can get them off the COBE, you're going to do that uh, and move towards a safer heart regimen. But that's not always I mean, that's the possible. thing. There's
2: I can't think of a reason. I mean, someone probably out there can. But in general, usually, if you can use L-vitegravir with COBE, you could use dolutegravir. And then you eliminate that
0: stress
2: if the person's willing to switch, which is what For I'm just
0: doing. a brief period of time switching to, yeah. to uh Dolly Tegravier would be the simplest. And then you don't have the Kobe problem. And I, I think the, the field is sort of split right now on this final issue, but is there really a serious problem with the box review? And this was a case that Susanna Nagy gave me, so I do not know what she ended up doing. I think she used a soft box. Okay. Uh, is there another step? Uh, and and it's a switching heart, yeah. Okay, so I have someone
2: um, who I just treated who was in that exact situation almost, and yeah, I just switched them to TAF, FTC, Dalyutegravir, and then used box. and okay. he's doing great.
0: So now we're going to take this last phase of, of, of the case where, let's say we used our box in Raba, and she got an SVR, and now she's coming back to you. SVR12, we, we already had a nice discussion that so some people would do more RNA testing, some would not, but um, with, uh, w- w- what else, w- w- what would you say about this? So she gets the SPR, which is true, she needs Q6 uh, month ultrasounding, or let's say her elastography drops down below 10, we can stop, those are your two choices. You're, gonna, you're either gonna keep doing them indefinitely, or you're going to stop if you're going to repeat any elastography, and if it's below 10, you're going to stop the whole ultrasound nonsense. I'm glad I asked for a Yeah,
2: I like it. Okay,
0: excellent we've got half and half, okay, so um, some would repeat the elastography, uh, and some would not. Do you guys have strong feelings about this if not i'll just launch in
2: i I strongly feel you shouldn't stop at this point
0: so you're you're with the sixty three percent
1: I think the last time I checked the guidelines it still said one and I, what I tend to do in my practice, just because I think the data may shift as we get um, further out, is I repeat annual elastographies just to get a sense of how that fibrosis is reversing in case the guidelines change. So maybe Dave can tell us what's coming.
0: Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because just a, a month ago, that question was addressed by that same august panel that uh, this is not the IDSA ASLD guidance that some of us are uh, involved with. This is the AGA uh, who asked the question, if the elastography goes down below 9.5 after an SVR, can we stop hepatocellular carcinoma testing? And that was their question, and their answer was yes. In adults with chronic hepatitis C who have achieved SVR with antiviral therapy, we can accurately rule out advanced cirrhosis with a uh, post-treatment elastography lesson. In other words, yes. They should just put yes in the box. It's a very low
2: quality of evidence, so they say.
0: this—so 35 percent of you agree with the AGA guidelines and 65 percent agree with the ASLD IDSA guidelines. Uh, so, so there you go. You, you can both find guidelines for you. I, I tend to go—I agree, their data are very, very limited here. There was one French study that repeated uh, elastography after SVR. And, and actually, it was done so long ago, it was after Peg Riba uh, SVRs. And the, those that did have their uh, elastography drop down did not have any more liver cancers, any more liver events, nothing. So it, there, th- there is a study that showed that, but it was a relatively small study. And, um, and a lot of people are not ready to, to adopt this practice. And a lot of those with many patients are seeing liver cancer post SVR. So for now, I wouldn't do it. I think you'd still do your ultrasound. But um, I also, like Christine, I keep getting elastographies because, like, you know, you can talk in general, and that's what we do in these kind of meetings. But there's also the patient that I present in case one, what was sort of a soft F3. Christine, I don't think I've convinced her that it was even an F3. And so if that patient was like really bothered by the practice and, and, and it was really difficult, would you um, ruin your, your, your patient relationship over that issue? Or would you just say, okay, well, I've, you know, maybe I'm not gonna badger you as much as I would somebody with an elastography of 30. And, and I think that's kind of where I use the data. And if it comes down, I'm not, for example, badgering them to get another vericee look. Uh, because I think that's especially unlikely, and someone that where it drops below yeah. ten, because this thing tracks so well the Padovina's pressure gradient. So, you know, th- those are the way you actually practice with individual patients differs. But that's what those are the data, and those are the guidelines. Um, so stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll have. I, ag-
2: I agree. I just I think there's sort of people can get the wrong message because if you repeat the the elastography, it's gonna go down just by the nature of treating the patient because you've decreased the inflammation in the liver and so it's kind of like those old thresholds no longer, I mean maybe this is now the threshold, defining what the threshold is for cirrhosis after treatment, it's gonna be a different threshold. So I just wouldn't want to give someone the message like you don't have cirrhosis anymore, incorrectly because it could drop from from 13 to 11 and they still have cirrhosis and they're still at risk, they still shouldn't drink alcohol, they still should get screened, you know, and you wouldn't want to um, falsely reassure them because just because of the liver inflammation's gone. So I think it's understanding how to use the elastography after cure better and once people truly define that, I think then we'll have, you know, an answer and I think then you can, yeah, apply the data you have.
0: There's a question from the audience. What's the most common cause of new hep C infections in New York City?
2: New infection? Yeah. yeah.
0: They actually made it into a multiple choice for you. They said intranasal <laughs> cocaine,
2: I hope this MSM, or
0: intravenous drug use. I,
2: I, I think it's intravenous drug use with MSM as a second. The last data I saw was 15% was sexual, which was much higher than what people used to. But correct me if I'm wrong. If the person who wrote that question has the answer. Yeah,
0: sometimes you guys are knowing the answer and just checking us.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Did, did it? No. No one say OK. And then they oh. want to know the same thing. Fastest-growing oh. population of HIV in New York City. Does anyone know the answer? No I do not know. No one cares
1: about Baltimore, Dave? <laughs> I, I know
0: the answer Baltimore in Baltimore both these. It's, it's African-American young MSM in Baltimore for HIV. And it's young. Um, Drug use, including um, in the counties, uh, not just in the city, with Hep C, it's it's new initiatives into drug use, so the opioid epidemic for for Baltimore, and I don't know the answer. Which raises,
2: I mean, we're talking about monitoring monitoring for cirrhosis, but monitoring for reinfection is also important
1: in our patients with. How do you symptoms.
0: monitor for reinfection? Uh,
1: so in my MSMs, I I. Well, I annually screen for hep C in people who are at risk. So I guess, monitoring for reinfection, I would sort of apply the same thing, but with RNA testing. But that was just off the top of my head.
0: So the antibody test persists, and after an SVR, it doesn't go away. So you have to just keep doing the RNA testing in people with ongoing risk to look for reinfection. It's really important to emphasize that point, and it was made earlier by Mike. It's been a multiple point multiple times that they, they do, after a cure, remain at risk, for um, reinfectioning, and that and the can... the
2: people who are probably highest risk are the people who recently acquired it, because they were, you know, had risk factors that led them to acquire it recently and may still be right. doing those things, whereas people who, you know, maybe acquired this 20 years ago and no longer are, may no longer have those behaviors and may be less at risk.
0: Another person's interested in our perspective on Hep C care occurring in the community. There's been some studies that have shown that you can train community providers to, to do hepatitis C care and have non inferior outcomes to um, specialists. But how, how do you, this, question, this person's interested in, in your opinions on that in, in uh, other parts of the country other than New York City?
1: So we, in Baltimore, we had this fantastic program where we had um, training for mid-level providers and people at the community clinics that um, happened twice a year in person and then uh, an annual or a weekly case conference call with the providers calling in um, to specialists and getting reinforcement for um, some of the uh, lectures that were presented. And I think the outcomes were really fantastic. I mean, at this stage, it's just more volume than a specialist can handle so I think if uh, we can provide community clinics with the training and the resources, it's a great way to get more treatment to patients.
2: Yeah, I agree. There are studies that support that. I think anybody can treat this now. You know, anybody who wants to, anybody who has the interest. And if you have any questions that come up, because everybody gets stumped once in a while, I did it in front of the whole audience. And uh, so just email for help. Email me. Email in the pool.
0: There was someone asking for the phone number for the, did you see that question there that I put in front of you for your uh, study, for your fiber scans? They want to know how to get them in Cornell. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't
2: see and that one. I was wondering in terms of screening
1: for primary HCV infection in HIV-positive patients who may not convert or may not produce enough of the antibody, do you screen with RNA or do you not screen with the antibody? So it's actually very rare, even with advanced HIV, to not zero Um I, Dave might be able to speak to the specific studies. So generally, I think it's still, for a primary infection, antibodies should be sufficient.
0: There's That's always right.
1: anecdotal cases, but.
0: Yeah, Chloe Theo did a study years back showing that with that newer generation tests, so there's a bit of a delay, this year conversion, but you can still use the antibody test. If you have elevated liver enzymes, then do an RNA test, um, because that could be acute infection, so. Okay, well, we are coming to the end of the hepatitis cases. If you have any more questions. Someone um, asked can... me what
2: Cornell charged for last biography. That's the good Oh, they it wonder was. how much and they charge. Know,
0: oh. How much that, does Cornell charge? You for know, a that's a
2: good part? question, but I, I mean, it, they charge what insurance will pay is what I think they charge.
0: As much <laughs> as insurance will but pay. But I think if
2: it's out of pocket, it's probably somewhere in the three to 500 range, but I'm not
0: 100% sure. Okay, so um, I want to thank our panelists for doing a fantastic job.